Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Hi. It snowed last night, didn't it? <laughs> we got a dusting was, in Riverhead. Just a just a quick dusting. I, I woke up and I was like, you know, I, I lifted the shades. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Really? It's like a Joe a Joe Bluth. Come on, oh, it's still March. <laughs> Come on. Come on. It is still March. I know, but we don't want it to be March anymore. No. <laughs> the Ides of March. So <laughs> Yeah, interestingly enough, this is a very interesting week to do this particular topic because this was a, a year ago this week was the year that everything came to a grinding halt and we all went in our hidey holes and have yet to emerge. So this has been the longest two weeks of my life. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a year in the hidey hole and um, and sort of how we can see a little bit of light at the end of our Warren peeking down the tunnel. I still think President Trump will be proven right that one day this thing will just magically disappear <laughs> uh, it hasn't happened so far just but, like uh, the marshmallows and your lucky charms <laughs> <laughs> wow i know frightening right so let's do our intros bill sutton is manning the controls once again hey bill good morning annette i'm bill sutton i'm the managing editor of the express news group and we have brendan j o'reilly this week hey brendan how are you hi i'm brendan i'm the features editor and we have Joe Shaw here with us again. Hi, Joe. Yeah, again, it's Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And sitting in with us this week is senior reporter Michael Wright. Uh, Mike writes a lot about vaccines and what's going on with the COVID um, crisis out here. So we thought we'd have Mike join us this week and bring us up to speed on what's happening. And I guess the big news here a year out from are hiding in our holes and our houses and not coming out for a year is that the vaccines are now on the horizon in here. I thought we could start by talking a little bit about the vaccine rollout and some of the issues that we had leading up to where we are now, because it feels like this week, really, we sort of turned a corner as far as availability out here. So let's jump into that, shall we? Mike's become quite the, uh, you've become quite the multimedia journalist here in the last couple of weeks. We've had you on the radio, have you on the podcast a couple of times. I've got a haircut for radio. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling it's why I said that. <laughs> so the big news this week is the Stony Brook Southampton campus opened up their vaccination clinic, right? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. This is Friday morning, March 19th, and they started uh, shots at 8 o'clock this morning, I believe, or 7 o'clock this morning. Um, so there, there should be a, a lineup of people waiting to get their doses uh, right here in Southampton, which, you know, a few scant weeks ago would have seemed like uh, an impossibility. We were, we were in the vaccine desert, and now we've got a few thousand senior citizens that have been vaccinated, which was a, a big issue uh, out here in particular, just because uh, so many seniors had problems getting appointments in the mass vaccination sites way to the west. And then also even getting to them was just not feasible for, for many of them. My neighbor in Springs, uh, who's 83 years old, 
said, I don't need to bother with the, with the state appointment site because I can't go even west of Riverhead to get a shot. I just, I can't be away from the house that long. So <clears throat> it's, a, it's a big deal that we have uh, shots now in Southampton. There's tons of appointments. As of yesterday, they were already, you know, they went online Wednesday. As of yesterday, they were already uh, booked through to April, end of April, May, April 23rd, I think somebody said yesterday in the mid-afternoon or mid-morning. Was this a shift in, I mean, I just wondered like why um, it took a while to establish this center out here. And was it just sort of the state itself had a shift in philosophy and originally we're thinking only have these massive centers in New York City and big metro areas and sort of expecting the hinterland people to travel a couple hours. I mean, I just wondered if, if there was something that happened at the state level, shifted it out here. Yeah, uh, to, to a certain extent, a lot of it is just supply um, and, uh, and priority. You know, they, they, New York State prioritized healthcare workers and, uh, you know, a few other small groups of essential workers um, uh, very early on. And so that was where a lot of the shots went. They went to these hospital groups and they were supposed to vaccinate their doctors and nurses and, you know, local dentists and all that sort of stuff. And, and those people have gotten it now. And so there's more flowing into the supply for uh, the other, the, you know, the priority groups uh, further down the line. And so there's, there's more room for mass vaccination sites to be set up. They say, you know, I mean, the early mass vaccination sites were closer to where there's more people. And, you know, they heard it from uh, the local officials out here. I mean, the East End really is sort of unique in that we're, we're kind of a, a hinterland on the fringe of a huge population center. So it's not like upstate where they could say, all right, this area has this percentage of the state population. You send this many shots uh, to that area and, and let them distribute it as needed. You know, out here, we were very isolated and for senior citizens in particular, actually senior citizens only, it was a real problem. You know, the other essential workers out here, you know, people at our company, you know, you drove, you drove to tons of teachers from East Hampton and Montauk, even, you know, you drove to Jones Beach, you drove to Stony Brook and you got your shot and it just kind of, and we're happy to do so, frankly. And so that was fine. And, you know, they addressed the seniors uh, through a couple of clinics in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital gave out like at least three or 4,000 shots locally. Uh, the uh, East Hampton town got, uh, you know, uh, several hundred shots of their own, uh, which they prioritized essential workers, mostly not seniors. Uh, and then there were a couple other pop-ups here and there that were, that were senior centric and for people of color and that sort of thing. So the shots, the shots are here. In now. the beginning, it seemed like people were going over to Connecticut even and that they tried that for a little while until I guess Connecticut caught on to the fact that New Yorkers were sneaking over the border to come get their shots. Yeah, uh, right. Well, and it wasn't even sneaking. I mean, they went on to the CVS website. The CVS said, your closest CVS that had shots is in Waterford, Connecticut, or whatever the town yeah. is. And so they were like, great, let's go. I mean, listen, I know that you know, one of my friend's wives from uh, from East Hampton, I mean, she's a doctor, and that's where she went and got, that's where she went and got her shot. Were, were they able to go back know? for their second shot, or did they? I was wondering how that would work if they realized so, they were from New York. I don't think there was ever any edict to that regard. Some people did do that. A lot of people, CVS sort of, 
uh, you know, we had a story a few weeks ago about some people that had gotten their first shot up there like the day before Connecticut caught on and stopped a, a whole bunch of people from New York that were standing online literally to get shots. Um, and they said, uh, we were very afraid. And then all of a sudden, there was this email that said, the Center for Riches CVS has second doses only and appointments for those. So it's like, uh, okay. it was like CVS knew and said, all right, so here's a here's an allocation for you people, get new appointments. It has to be for a second dose. Well, it is funny. I think a lot of people, they don't think about that. Like whenever you're looking for a, a product or something and it, it, it always sends right. you to Connecticut because totally. it's only seven try, miles. Try buying a car. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I know. So I think that's kind of funny because it's not in their algorithm to, you know, don't send people over the water. That a ferry is in the calculation and it might as well be 200 miles away. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. I have to say, I think that this, the, the state mass vaccination sites are a marvel when they get set up, they, they are really efficient and um, they, they really move people through fast and keep the appointments. I, I, for the most part, I don't think you even really wait in line at those mass vaccination sites. They're very well yeah. run. Um, so it's nice to have, I think the number of shots they can turn out in a day is pretty stunning. And, and I made the point before that it's important to note that you folks with comorbidities like me, who were eligible uh, pretty much from the get-go, couldn't really get shots locally um, because those shots were set aside for uh, first responders and healthcare workers and, and elderly people. Uh, appropriately, by the way, they should, they should have had the easiest access to it. Um, but um, if you have comorbidities, you had to go to a state site. And the closest state site was Stony Brook um, and a lot of us went further. I went to, I'm going to try and say it correctly the first time, Aqueduct. Did I, did I say it that time? That I was right? That, that's uh, correct as long as you stopped and got a gyro on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the operation there is really amazing and seems like, I, I don't know, to me it felt like um, the, they have the ability to, to just do so many shots in a day and um, having that close by, I think, is going to make a big difference. But, you, you know, Mike, we were just talking earlier this morning about there are still pockets of people out there um, and many of them in high risk um, categories or in very public jobs and folks like in the you know, people of color and people who are in underserved communities who aren't necessarily getting the message that they're eligible and can go get shots. And you had a, a, a pretty interesting anecdote about that, I thought. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, and that, that, that's an age old story that, that the, the communication network for all of this is, uh, has big holes in it. And you know, not everybody reads the Southampton Press on Thursday morning and not everybody's on 27 East or reading Newsday or listening to the radio and watching the nightly news and you know, News 12 and you know, word that a vaccination site is in the backs is in their backyard or that they're eligible, um, you know, doesn't get to a lot of people. And uh, I was in a grocery store in Southampton on Wednesday night, uh, which the announcement uh, had come out on Monday that appointments for a for a Southampton vaccination would be available starting Wednesday morning. And, uh, you know, I was checking out the grocery store and I asked the uh, 
the lady who uh, was checking me out, who was a senior citizen and a person of color uh, and, and a grocery worker, so therefore eligible if she had gotten her vaccination yet, because um, I rather assumed that she'd probably been eligible for quite some time. And uh, she said, no. And I said, oh, well, they have appointments at the college available right now. You can get one. And she said, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. And she didn't know that grocery store workers made, the, uh, made it eligible. Even though I didn't ask if she was over 60, but I think she was. And, um, and she didn't know that grocery store workers were eligible to get it. And then I spoke to another person, uh, another worker uh, on the way out the door and told him, you know, make sure she and anybody else, uh, you know, goes online and gets vaccination appointments. And he said to me, oh, no, but you have to go to the doctor and get a note first. So there's, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there and, uh, you know, a, a lot of communication that needs to be done. And, you know, frankly, the state's um, system has worked really well. I mean, the website got beat up early on just because there were too many people. And, you know, the governor was very critical of that, that they were just following the CDC guidelines. And, it, you know, in a state like New York, it, it just made so many people eligible that it overwhelmed an online system. And it, since then, it's, it's caught up and it works really efficiently. And, um, you know, that they set their priorities in New York and, and they stuck to it. And, you know, you can criticize it however you want, but like you said, it, it, those mass vaccination sites are super efficient. Uh, they they really work, and you know the priorities that New York chose were based on the people that sort of are forced to be available to helping the rest of their communities, like doctors and nurses and dentists and and people that people have to go to. And you know, senior citizens were not at the absolute top of the list because you know they've been in their houses staying safe for the most part for eight, nine months. And, you know, they can continue to do that for another month or two. And once it got to the point where, you know, they could, they could be worked into the system smoothly as they are now, they, they have been. And, you know, in some other places, everybody's talked about how what a great job Florida has done. I mean, you know, they still have senior citizens standing outside of pharmacies for, you know, a couple of hours, which I don't know a single senior citizen that would want to do that. We've talked about it before, and I'm glad that they're working smoothly. And I actually, you know, have comorbidities and, and went to Stony Brook and thought it worked really well um, and got my shot a, a couple weeks ago. But, you know, we, we've talked about it before, and, and some of this is the information flow that you were talking about. And I, I just can't help but feel that the whole process was backwards around, that appointments were given to people who had better internet service or had people who could, you know, help them to go on refresh, 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 and, and get appointments. And in other areas, it worked the opposite, where you would register and, and then somebody would call you for an appointment. And I just can't help think that some of those underserved communities and the seniors might have been served better that way if there had been a better system to make sure that people who were eligible knew they were eligible and get them into some kind of system where then they could be reached out to rather than requiring people to jump these hurdles to, to get an appointment. I know that there was a Facebook page that came up that has been very active. And it's a lot of people here on the East End who have jumped in to try to help schedule appointments for seniors who really can't manage the system. It's actually been kind of a cool 
little community outreach thing that a lot of people have just taken upon themselves to get appointments for for others, which has worked out for a lot of people, I think. I think the phone scheduling too works pretty well um, for a lot of seniors now too. And I I think I, I hear from more and more people who have gone that route to set up an appointment and uh, get through fairly quickly and are able to do that. So I think I think a lot of the a lot of the problems we saw uh, are getting fixed and addressed, and we are starting to see the numbers go up. Um, but you know, it's it's worth pointing out Suffolk County is still a real problem area. The numbers are still above the state average. Uh, they have kind of plateaued. You mean the number of cases of COVID cases? The number of cases. I think hospitalizations is... Hospitalizations too. Stony Brook, Southampton hospitals, hospitalizations have gone up the last week. Yeah, it's a week and a half. They doubled in two days last week. I mean, from six to 12. It's still still a problem here. No question. That's still a lot. I mean, yeah, not good. So I wonder, you know, I've been reading about... um, what's sort of happening in other parts of the country where vaccine hesitancy is starting to kick in. And um, I know some states have opened it up. So like any adult is now allowed to get the vaccine because I think they're finding that vaccines are going un- unclaimed. Yeah. Um, and um, I think I read in, was it the New York times? I read that like Republican men, 49% white Republican men have uh, are not interested in getting the vaccine. That's I think what I had read. Well, what's going to be a huge issue now is the AstraZeneca vaccine. We've stockpiled it in the United States because we haven't approved it for use in the United States yet. And we have so much of it that even when it eventually gets approved, presumably, um, we'll have more than we needed. So now we're sending it to Canada and Mexico because they've already approved it and they could really use it. However, the European Union kind of put it on pause. Uh, Their regulatory agency for the whole EU said... Uh, it's safe to use, but then uh, Norway, Sweden, and a third country have said, we're going to give it another week before we use it again. And the concern there is blood clots. Some people have gotten the vaccine and not long after have had blood clots. Uh, I heard about a a fatal blood clot that happened. uh, This one was located in somebody's brain. Uh, The problem with this is they can't really draw a connection between the vaccine and the blood clots because the prevalence of blood clots happening among vaccinated people is the same as the prevalence of vac- of blood clots happening among the general population. But it's very hard to convince people that there's no cause and effect. I think the EU just announced today, as a matter of fact, that they are resuming using the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, again. They, they are, but the problem is, are people going to take it? And yeah. I could tell you more than a week ago, um, because my wife works with people in Germany, uh, I could tell you that people have been refusing to take AstraZeneca for some time. And the fact that they paused it and reopened it, that that didn't really give people a lot of confidence. Yeah. In it. Mm-hmm. And I think many people are still going to refuse it, even though it's available to them. Yeah. We have a lesser problem in the United States with the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, where I think that for some reason, uh, some of the statistics as far as efficiency, uh, efficacy, sorry, um, f- of the vaccines got were, were put out to the public and maybe not put into the proper context. 
And so a lot of people started to see the Johnson and Johnson vaccine as somehow lesser than, than the other vaccines. Um, and I think that's been uh, a cloud hanging over it that, that's, that's stalled its use a little bit in um, some, especially, and it's, it's being used. Well, it does, it does have a lower efficacy, right? Slightly. Slightly. It's like 70% instead of over 90%. Yeah, it's a, it's a little more complicated, though. But it will still protect you from being hospitalized or dying. I mean, and I think that's lost in that message. Yeah, I, I believe that's the point. Right. It, the, the couple of things are, yeah. it's actually more effective, I think, in keeping you keeping people who do get the disease from, from having it turn severe and having it be fatal. It's also one dose instead of two. It's also much easier to um, administer because it, it doesn't require the kind of um, frigid conditions, things like that. So I, I think all of the experts that I've seen have said, take the vaccine that's available to you. They're all roughly the same. They all work wonderfully. Don't get bogged down in these details because I think the efficacy rates it's a lot more complicated than than those statistics that just you know it, it sounds simple when you just say sixty percent versus ninety percent. Well, but that is a lot more complicated than it sounds, and anything above fifty percent is considered an effective vaccine. So, and the big fear, right, is is that if if enough people refuse to get vaccinated, then I'm going to use the term herd immunity. Then then we won't reach herd immunity, and we won't control the virus. So people need to to be educated and hopefully we can convince those naysayers to go ahead and get vaccinated for everybody else's sake. And with all these variants coming up, they're not sure how effective these vaccines are gonna be against these emerging variants, which can often be um, more contagious and apparently more deadly with the one from the UK apparently. Um, but I also think that, you know, with the J and J vaccine, I think, uh, I don't know if this is going to play out this way, but I sort of envision that one being a really logical vaccine to get into the arms of like college age students, you know, the, the less, less risky group who, you know, are, it's kind of difficult to maybe get them back for two shots. You would think as more and more pharmacies and, and other, and, and other providers, um, start providing the vaccine, then that's an easier vaccine for them to deal with that they can just keep on stock and, um, you know, and, and distribute as as needed where you, you don't need the, you know, like you were saying, the specialized refrigeration equipment and all that. I think you can understand it, though, too. I mean, especially people of color. So Governor Cuomo got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine this week at a black church, and he had made it clear that he wanted to encourage people of color to accept the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. But if you're a person of color, I think you already come into this with a wariness because of the history of the United States and, and the way medicine has misused people of color. And there's a distrust that's, that's already involved in the equation. And now you have this vaccine that that fairly or not is is being viewed by the public as something lesser than the other, and that's the vaccine that's going to a lot of communities of color. And I, I mean, I think it's unfortunate because it it feeds that narrative, which I, I don't think is is rooted in facts. But I also understand the hesitancy, and and it just you know it. it it just it just breeds suspicion 
and that's a problem and and we really need everybody to be all in on this and and it's it's going to be a tough thing to get yeah that's the case in so many corners i have so many friends who are not people of color with a with a a, a long demographic history of, of being mistreated by uh, the medical community and they say they're not getting the vaccines mm. yeah. people don't trust vaccines a lot of people Hey, does anybody know offhand the name of the Russian COVID vaccine? Sputnik. 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 Yep, Sputnik five. All right. Sputnik five. And, and it has been effective, right? I read an article this week that that it was made fun of early on because a lot of people thought the Russians were just sort of making it up that they had a vaccine, but it's actually been really effective, right? It's shown to be 91.6% effective according to the Lancet Medical Journal. So you would hope that the Lancet did its own study. It didn't just take, you know, Putin's word for it, uh, but it's available in Latin America. Like if you go to Mexico right now, you could get basically every COVID vaccine under the sun will be available to you. Huh. It's a shame because it, it seems like 10 years ago had this happened. I mean, I mean, it did happen 10 years ago. We've had a series of outbreaks of viruses that have been dealt with. None of them have gotten to this point. But 10 years ago, I feel like there was a, an international feeling of everybody would pull together and do what everybody had to do to, to get this vaccine conquered worldwide. I, I think that's just not the way the world is right now. I think it fragmented over the last four years, roughly. Um, correlating to watch. Huh? <laughs> what are you trying to say? There's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of mistrust. There's a lot of mistrust. There's a lot mm -hmm. of hostility. And uh, a lot of this idea of competing nations rather than um, pulling nations together. But that said, I, I think that this crisis really has united the world in, in a way too. And, and you need a crisis sometimes to do that. I think it I think to some degree, um, this thing doesn't recognize nationality or race or anything else. And by the way, um, I just am fascinated, Mike, that you say that, that so many of your friends are still not going to get the vaccine. Because I feel like with half a million people um, dead in this country, I don't know that there's anybody who hasn't been touched in some way by a death-related to COVID-19. And, and I feel like that changes your perspective, but I guess it doesn't change everybody's perspective. Two, two of the people that I know that are not getting the vaccine are hospital employees. But hospital employees have been one of the, one of the more uh, reticent groups. And uh, I think that's a complicated issue too, but uh, that's not unusual. Yeah. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Speaking of looking back at the last year, this week, Joe, you did a Q&A with Robert Schaliner, who is the head administrator at Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. And um, I wondered if you wanted, if you could share a little bit about some of the things that Bob touched on um, in terms of this past year and what really struck him as being a, a real learning point for being at the hospital and how the hospital got through this crisis. 
Yeah, I have to say Bob Challoner is one of my favorite interviews uh, that you can do. And we go back to him pretty regularly because the hospital is so important. But um, he's just so candid and so honest and uh, an easy interview, just a very easy guy to talk to about very big issues. And, you know, at the one year mark, uh, we really just wanted to touch base with him and talk about what was learned during the last year and, and how the hospital held up. And um, I think he, he had some, I think the most interesting things he had to say uh, have to do with, so the hospital is looking ahead to a very big project that they want to do in the next couple of years, which is building a new hospital on the Stony Brook Southampton campus in Shinnecock Hills. That would replace the aging and not very well uh, situated facility in Southampton Village. It's a little hard to access for ambulances. And um, it's a very old building that's been sort of repurposed for modern needs. They want to start from scratch and build a state-of-the-art hospital at Stony Brook Southampton campus. And that's a project they're fundraising for as we speak, I think. But the way this pandemic, it began to influence the thinking going forward about what that hospital is going to look like and what some of the features of it are. The crisis has taught us so many different things and it will affect our planning going forward in the future. Um, as we're looking at a new hospital, um, there, are, there, there are many lessons learned. And some of the things that we think about is in a hospital, um, air pressure is very important. So somebody is infectious, you want them in a room where all the air is going in. You don't want the air coming out of that room potentially affecting other people. Somebody who's immunocompromised, you want the air going out. You don't want the outside air that may have infectious agents in it coming into their room. Um, and traditionally hospitals were built with only a couple of sort of what we call negative or positive pressure rooms. In the future, we want to build all of our rooms so that they can be at a flip of a switch. We can, we can change the pressure gradient in the room. That's one lesson we've learned. We've also, if you look at our emergency room today, there are bays in the emergency room. People like open emergency rooms where if there's a crisis, suddenly you can move the stretchers all around and there's curtains separating the stretchers. Curtains aren't so great in an infectious disease outbreak like this because curtains can't be cleaned that easily. We can't really segregate people the way that we should. Um, we can't really use those bays for private overflow rooms. So we will build an emergency room where all of the walls are hard walls around them and we can create uh, uh, separate rooms for them. We'll also, we look very much at our waiting rooms and uh, making sure that we don't have a flow where people are sitting together, concentrated in big waiting rooms. No one wants to wait in a big waiting room anyway. We want to keep people moving through the process. And COVID has turned, taught us a lot of lessons about how we can keep people moving. And in a um, sense, we, we got into the conversation about how this past year is going to be a line of demarcation for to some degree for the medical community. Bob, I, I thought it was really interesting. He compared it to the AIDS crisis, uh, the HIV and AIDS crisis when it first uh, came out. And he said, you know, before then, the idea of nurses and doctors wearing gloves on a regular basis when dealing with patients, uh, nurses and doctors were opposed to the idea. Why I need to be able to feel people's skin. I can't work with gloves on. That changed 
um, very quickly. I started work in this field in 1982, and that's uh, I was working at Lenox Hill ha uh, Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And the and the I remember when the first HIV/AIDS patient was admitted. We didn't know what it was. Um, they talked about it being the gay plague, um, and people weren't sure what was the, um, you know, the staff were afraid, quite frankly, to treat some of these patients. Once they were able to isolate what was causing HIV, and we realized that this was a blood-borne pathogen and a, and a body-fluid-borne pathogen, um, and we adopted universal um, uh, precautions, uh, how we deal with blood samples, uh, people wearing rubber gloves when they draw samples, um, hand washing. And in the early 80s, I remember meeting with doctors and nurses, and the doctors were saying things like, I'm not going to wear, I don't want to wear gloves. They're going to affect, I can't feel the patient's pulse. I can't, there was a real reaction to it. And it was a whole cultural shift. And now we just take these things for granted. I think there are going to be long-lasting uh, effects of this right now. I mean, this is the first year I think about myself. I'm, I'm wearing a mask. Every year I get one or two colds every winter. We all get those colds. I haven't had one, knock on wood, so far this year. Um, and I'm wondering how that's, going to, uh, how that's going to impact us next year, maybe during flu season. One of my big uh, takeaways from the past year is that there was no real flu season. Instead of hundreds of thousands of people requiring to be hospitalized, tens of thousands of deaths, as you, as you would expect in a regular flu season, there were so few hospitalizations and so few deaths. And obviously it's because we're not all going into the office and getting each other sick. Post COVID, how much of that is gonna stick around? Are we gonna be smart enough to not just go back to getting everybody else sick when one of us has the flu? Are we going to say, Somebody in the office had flu, everybody else in that person's department is going to work from home the rest of the week to make sure that we're not causing the next pandemic. A couple of the other things I thought that was interesting that he spoke about with you was realizing the importance of the small stuff that they never thought about, you know, like getting the gowns and the PPE and plexiglass shield plastic and all the stuff that you just um, assume will always be there. You and know? as I think back about the past year, probably the most important lesson we learned is don't ignore the small stuff. Um, that there were so many things that we don't think about. And uh, early on in the pandemic, having availability of plastic gowns, having availability of face masks, and having... Um, basic supplies that we just assume are going to be available to us every single day. Um, and I remember thinking um, at one point it was like during Hurricane Sandy. And I live in East Hampton and the woods in East Hampton and we lost power. And I thought, well, we've got candles, we can cook over a, a butane stove. Didn't think about it. Um, and it was actually kind of nice sitting around with the candles and eating dinner at candlelight. But we didn't have water. And you just expect that the water is gonna flow um, and you don't really think about certain things like that. And that's what it was like in the early days of Sandy. Some of these basic, basic details. We all know about the, um, the medicine, the medications, setting up the ICU, the staffing, the big stuff, but it's that attention to those little tiny, tiny detail issues. And I think that's the big lesson that we need to be ready for all those little tiny details. I also asked them, you know, just about the hospital staff 
and how they held up uh, over the last year and was surprised that he said that he really felt that there wasn't so much turnover. I had sort of expected to hear that the hospital may have lost um, staff over the course of the year just because of the grueling nature of what our healthcare professionals were put through. And I think a lot of people may have just decided to walk away. Uh, Bob said that's not true, that, that they did not have any more turnover than they would have had in a normal year. And in fact, he thinks that the morale level is has never been higher because um, these healthcare professionals do what they do because they love it, but they really understand now um, how important they are. And I think the other thing is the community has expressed its appreciation effectively. You find out in a crisis just how important they are. And this has been a, a terrible year, a terrible year. Um, and they've come through it. And um, I think there's a feeling of more strength uh, from that group. I think the other thing is like, it was very interesting that they, how much they learned about just treating the disease itself, you know, over the course of time, you know, the second wave and the third wave, the, the way that the medical community sort of learned what was the best practice to get people through this, you know, the proning and different medications. And there were definitely big differences between the first wave and the second wave. The first wave Number one, uh, we went into it not really knowing how to treat the disease. There was, there were, it was brand new. It was called novel coronavirus, which meant that it was, it was new, and we didn't know really how it was affecting the body. There was a lot of, um, if you remember, a lot of discussion in the media about different medications that were being tried, and you know, even politically, there were people talking about different types of medications. And it was sort of, let's just throw anything up against the wall and see if it sticks for treatment. And I heard the doctors talking about this stuff. Little by little, we've learned a lot about this virus over the last year. And the protocols and the treatment protocol, the treatment protocols have become very, very um, standardized. Um, we have a sense of best practice right now. We know what works. We know what doesn't work. And early on, doctors um, know what to do when a person starts to show symptoms of coronavirus. Um, and we've seen uh, treatments that are very, very effective. And we can intercept um, and deal with the virus much more effectively early on. And we're seeing much better outcomes than we did early on. I think the good that will come out of this um, crisis is that the scientific and medical community understand coronaviruses in a way that they never did before. And I think we're going to be able to modify our treatments in a way much more effectively. Um, just like when, uh, you know, one of the, the goods that's come out of the HIV crisis is we understand the immunity system much better mm -hmm. and uh, medical people uh, have a much, much stronger knowledge of, of, of the way the immunity system works as a result of all the research that's been done. So yes, I think as a result of uh, all the research that's been with uh, coronavirus, we're going to see um, uh, treatments that evolve faster. Um, and I think we'll hopefully stay ahead of it in a way that we, we weren't able to before. There's a lot of scary and tragic things to think about with this pandemic. But one of the things that always hits me hard is thinking about the doctors and nurses in those first few weeks when patients were coming in and they literally had no idea what to do. There just wasn't a game plan for dealing with this virus. They didn't know what they were up against. They didn't know how it affected the body. 
But I think it is important to focus on the positives, which is that Stony Brook Southampton Hospital and Stony Brook Medicine in general were at the forefront of trying new things and, and, and giving that feedback. And, and I think that there was a nimbleness to the way the medical community responded. They learned a lot and shared a lot of that knowledge. And I, I think that certainly has helped so that now it's not a death sentence anymore. One of the questions I think about a lot is what will the world be like a year from now? And in, in healthcare, how different will we be from a year from now? I think there have been a lot of things we've put on the shelf for the last year because our focus, never in my career have I been so focused on one single issue the way I have been with uh, in the past year, you know, setting up, uh, getting the hospital, expanding the hospital capacity, setting up testing centers, now setting up immunization centers. And so much of our time and energy is just, it's, it's like we've had this tornado bearing down on us and we're all, bear, we're all focused on that. And so I think a year from now, we're going to be doing a lot of catch up for some of the things that we haven't been able to do for the last year. But I also hope we're going to be taking the lessons that we've learned and applying them and moving forward in a way that we we never did before. I also hope that that society's going to change a little bit, that the world has been in this together and that we appreciate what it's like to socialize. We appreciate what it's like to be in group meetings together we appreciate the freedom that we had prior to this coronavirus and that we we never take that for granted again. And I hope that as an industry in healthcare or as a sector in healthcare that we really continue to, to think about preparedness for this in the future because I, I hope I never see it again in my lifetime, but I do think that we've learned a lot and that we continue to apply those lessons in the coming years. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.